Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you all. If I haven't met you before, my name's Ben. It's just my privilege and my pleasure to open up God's Word with you this morning and uh, to really try and help us get a grip of this passage. It's a long passage. We're in Acts 6, verse chapter 8, and we're going to be working all the way through chapter 7, 60 verses there as well. So if you want to open up your Bibles there, um, Acts 6, verse chapter 8, I'll be dipping in and out, so you'll you'll get a lot more out of it if you have your Bible open, ready to flick to those verses that I mentioned. Not all of them will be on the screen. So you can power it up and unlock your Bible iPhone, or you can uh, get out your traditional Bible like myself. We're in the final week of our series this morning. 10 weeks we've been going through the book of Acts in our series, To the Ends of the Earth. Next year, we'll pick it up again and we'll continue in this book, but we're in the final week. And yeah, it's my privilege to open it up with you. I'm going to pray and then we'll get into it. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this time together. This is a sacred moment, a holy moment, because we are opening up your word and we ask that your spirit would speak directly to us. Have your way among us, Lord. Please use my words and anything that is not from me, may it fall away. Not from you, Lord, may that fall away. In Jesus' name, amen. I wonder if you can think of a moment in your life where someone's been really passionate about a message or an idea or a recipe or a fitness regime and they've been passionate about it, they say it works, but their life doesn't really match up to what they're saying. Maybe they said, hey, if you do this particular fitness regime and you eat this food, you will be super fit and yet you look at the fruit of their life and they're not really that fit themselves. When something like that happens, it makes their message less believable. And the point I'm trying to get across is that the fruit of someone's life can either authenticate or disqualify their message. The fruit, the effects in someone's life can either authenticate or disqualify their message. And you know, this statement can be applied to not just the message of a particular person, but even a whole culture. We live in the West We're the richest people in the world in the West. And there's a number of different messages that the West sort of preaches to us regularly, whether it's through TV or social media or whatever it might be. And one of the messages that we're regularly preached is materialism. Materialism, that material things can give you contentment and happiness. That nice clothes the fancy car, the nice suburb, the home, you'll, you'll finally be happy when you, when you just get this thing. It's not those things are bad, but our culture preaches to us that in them is where you'll find joy and contentment, you'll feel successful, you'll feel good. Now, is that true? What is the fruit that's being born in the lives of Westerners? Are they more happy? We're the richest people in the world. Are we more happy than the rest of the world? Well, I want you to hear this quote from Brock Bastian from the University of Melbourne. He was doing some research and he said this in an article a couple of years ago. He said, depression is listed as the leading cause of disability worldwide. Yet research shows a rather interesting pattern. Depression is far more prevalent in Western cultures. Western cultures. It's interesting In his article, he actually talks about when it comes to mental health, we shouldn't just be looking at the individual person, but we should be looking at how the whole culture is shaping us as people. And he argues that there's something wrong going on in the West. 
It's as if that message, materialism, is not actually true. It won't bring you true, lasting joy, contentment. And when we come into our passage this morning, we meet a young man, his name is Stephen. He's very passionate. He's got a strong message. He's been preaching it in the temple courts and some people come up and oppose him because of it. And, and we're gonna look at his life and especially the way that he died. He not only proved his message was consistent with the scriptures, with the Bible, but he lived it out in a beautiful way. In fact, when he was being put to death, he was there just crying out for mercy and forgiveness for his enemies. He lived a, a beautiful and compelling life. And if you and I want to know where to find that kind of life, that kind of joy that is unbreakable, that kind of peace that stands the tests and the trials of life, then we're going to really want to know what Stephen was all about. What was at the center of his life? What was at the center of his message? Because he discovered the secret to unbreakable joy. So let's jump into our passage and we're going to look at three scenes. Stephen's life, Stephen's message, and Stephen's death. All right, we'll pick up at Stephen's life. We introduced to him last week. He was one of these men in the church community that had a good reputation. He was a man of integrity and he was chosen to help lead and oversee the food distribution to widows. So he's doing wonderful work. He's helping the people who are you know, the most disadvantaged in the community. And as we open up our passage in chapter six, verse eight, it says, Stephen was a man full of God's grace and power and that he performed great wonders and signs among the people. So God was working powerfully through him. He was doing miracles and he's obviously preaching a message because the people who come and oppose him don't oppose what he's doing. They oppose his message. You see, there were some Jews around Jerusalem. There were plenty of Jews that still didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. So a particular Jewish synagogue rises up and they come and challenge Stephen on this message of Jesus. And they couldn't overcome what he was saying. It says in verse 10, they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. So you know how the old saying goes, if you can't beat them, undermine them. So that's what they did. They, they conspired to lie and to falsely accuse Stephen of different things. And we're just going to take a look for a moment at what they were accusing him of. Because if we can get a really good handle on their accusations, then we can understand this difficult sermon in the rest of chapter 7, which is the longest recorded sermon in the book of Acts. All right, this is what they were charging him with. I'm just opening up my Bible. Verse 11 says this. They said, we've heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. All right, so against Moses. Our Christian Bible is got an, old New, an Old Testament and a New Testament. Our Old Testament is the Jewish Bible. That's their Bible. And the first five books were written by Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So when he says that he's speaking blasphemous words against Moses, he's saying he's speaking, he's basically speaking against the scriptures. He's, he's contradicting what the Bible teaches. Same thing down just a little lower in verse 14 when he says that he never stops speaking against the law. The Jews sometimes referred to those first five books as the law, capital L. So they're saying he's contradicting the Bible, okay? That's a false accusation. He would never claim to have done that, but that's what they're saying. Verse 13, the beginning of that, they say, this fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place. Remember the early church was meeting in the temple court, so they're saying he's against the temple. 
In fact, verse 14, we have heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. Now, as you look through the book of Acts, you look at when that comes up, the customs of Moses, it's always around the issue of circumcision. So they're saying that Stephen is against circumcision. Now, what's that about? God sort of began the nation of Israel with Abraham. He chose him, he made him promises, he said he'd give him a land and a people. And then later on down the track, God sort of formalized that relationship as what we call a covenant. And he gave him this practice of circumcision to circumcise all the males in his family to mark them out externally as belonging to God. It was a symbol, it was a sign that they belonged to God. And so they're saying, Stephen's opposing this ancient practice of what it means to be a Jew. He's opposing circumcision. All right, so there's a bit going on there. And just to simplify that, I just want to give us three sets of questions that they're really disagreeing about here. And we're going to put them under three different sets of questions just to help us understand. You know, Adam said it was a pinnacle of preaching when he had three Ps last week. So I thought, I've got to try and, I've got to try and get that. So we've got three Ps. Third one's a little bit of a push, but um, you can accept it, hopefully. So the first P... People. The question is around people. Who can become part of the people of God? That's the question, right? Stephen's message, like I said, he's just preaching Jesus. You can become part of God's people through faith in Jesus. What they would say is, um, actually, you've got to be circumcised. You've got to become a Jew, essentially, to become part of the people of God. So they disagree about that. Second one is presence. Where is God present? Where is God active? Stephen's saying, you can access the presence of God through Jesus. These accusers would say, hang on, no, it's in the whole, this holy place, this temple. This is where God resides. This is where worship should happen. We should come to Jerusalem and worship the temple. That's where the presence of God is. And then lastly, the promised Messiah. Stephen would say, Jesus is the Messiah we've all been waiting for. And his accusers would say, yeah, it definitely wasn't that Jesus we crucified recently. It wasn't him. So those are the three sets of questions, and I think they will help us as we approach Stephen's speech now to run it through those three grids, because we don't have time to go through it verse by verse. And just to show you how Stephen uses this speech to defend himself, because he only mentions Jesus once in his speech, right at the very end. For the rest of it, he's just running through the story of Israel. And he's speaking to like the chief priest and the, the greatest religious leaders of the day. They knew their Bible so well. And I used to think, what is Stephen doing? Is he wasting his breath? Just speaking for so long about all these different great characters in the story of the Bible. He, he, just to give you an overview, he talks about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Jacob's sons with Joseph. And then he spends a whole lot of time on Moses, talks about the tabernacle moving through the wilderness. And then David, who wanted to build a temple, and Solomon, his son, who built the temple. That's basically the storyline. So he's running through that. And we're kind of going, why are you saying all this to the guys that already know this? Shouldn't you be defending himself? Well, he actually is. It's actually quite an ingenious way to do it. They say that he's against the Bible. So he uses the story of the Bible and he points out particular details as he runs through to show that actually Jesus is the fulfillment of circumcision and the temple and all the patterns and promises that we find in our story. In the end, it's actually you guys that are against God and his word, not me. So that's what Stephen's doing. Let's jump into his speech, Stephen's message, and we'll just run through that grid together. First of all, the first P is people. Who can become part of the people of God? Well, in verse two, 
Stephen says this, brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia. Then he goes on to talk about all the promises that Abraham was given and that he would be given a land and descendants and whatnot. And then verse eight, he very intentionally says this, then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. So his point is God found Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, a long way away from Israel. He was just a pagan. He wasn't a Jew. Circumcision wasn't even around yet, like wasn't even given to God's people. He was a pagan. God chose him. He didn't have the law. He didn't have the Bible. God chose him by grace. And then God entered into a relationship with him and gave him all these promises. And it wasn't until later that he actually gave him the practice of circumcision. So you guys are saying that to become part of God's people, you've got to do all these Jewish things, but that doesn't really fit the pattern we've got there with Abraham. And he goes on, he talks about Moses in verses 20 to 22. He says, when Moses, verse 21, when Moses was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. So he's kind of having a little bit of a dig here. He's saying, your precious Moses, the, the greatest Israelite ever who, who wrote these books of the Bible, he was brought up as an Egyptian to begin with. He was educated in Egyptian culture. For 40 years, he basically spent his life as an Egyptian. And God chose him. God was with him. It doesn't really fit this mold, this tight mold that you guys have got around who can become part of God's people. So he contradicts them. He shows that God accepted more kinds of people than the Israelite leaders cared to admit. God accepted more kinds of people. And what about today? Well, today it's still not about your ethnicity. It's not about the color of your skin. It's not about how many moral deeds you can perform or anything external to us. The way we can become part of God's people is through faith in Jesus through faith in Jesus. It's actually that wonderful. It's actually that amazing and that open to all. It's through simple faith and trust in Jesus that we've become part of God's family. Who can become part of God's people? All right, let's cover the second question. Where can we find God's presence? Where can we find God's presence? I'm gonna put up a pretty rough map on the screen. If we can get that up there. And that just sort of shows the different areas that Stephen intentionally goes to in his speech. So the yellow star there is Jerusalem. That's where sort of Israel is situated. But Stephen goes to all these different areas and he's tracing Israel's story and very intentionally showing where God was present and active outside of Israel. So in verse, verse two of chapter seven, he says that the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. So if you look at the top there, both of which are outside of Israel, God appeared to him. And then jumping down to verses 20 to 24, we already talked about the fact that Moses was raised in Egypt. And then verses 30 to 34, he talks about the burning bush story. Maybe you grew up around Christianity and you know about the story. Moses was walking through the wilderness near Sinai and he sees this burning bush and it starts speaking to him and it's not burning up. And he's like, whoa, this is... This is a crazy moment. It's actually God speaking to him through this bush. And this is where we pick it up in verse 32. This is what God says to him in the burning bush. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off your sandals for the place where you are standing 
is holy ground. See, Stephen includes that detail intentionally. His accusers are saying, he never stopped speaking against this holy place in Jerusalem. And Stephen's slowly starting to show that they've made an idol of the temple. It was a good thing, but they've made it everything. He said, actually, in the past, God appeared to Moses and didn't he say that was holy ground? Isn't a place holy if God is present there, not just contained in the temple in Jerusalem? And so he goes on. We don't have time to cover all the details, but in verses 48 to 50, he gets real explicit. He says, The Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? The temple was good. God gave it to the Israelites, but it was never intended to contain God's presence. God had made his presence accessible in more places than they cared to admit. You know, it's the same thing today. Where do you go to find God? What do you do? Do you need to be in a church building or go to a religious site or go on a pilgrimage somewhere or be in the great outdoors? Well, if Stephen was here today, he would preach the same message to say, you can have access to God's presence in Jesus. He's that gracious. He's that good. He's that kind. Through simple faith in Jesus, you can enter into a relationship with the living God. Lastly, Stephen talks about the promised Messiah. So he's claiming it, Jesus. His accusers are like, no, it's not Jesus. And what he does is he traces through Israel's story and he shows that his accusers are actually following one of the patterns in Israel's story. Israel kept not recognizing and rejecting the leaders and the rescuers that God raised up. All right, so let me just show you how Stephen does that. First of all, this happened with Joseph. So in chapter 7, verse 9, it says, The patriarchs were jealous of Joseph. They sold him as a slave into Egypt, but God was with him. So if you don't know the story of Joseph, he'd gotten these dreams from God that he was going to be this great kind of deliverer, and his brothers were jealous of him, and they almost killed him. They end up selling him as a slave into Egypt, but God was with him. And God raised him up again. He became one of the, the great sort of leaders in Egypt. He was just underneath Pharaoh and his famine happened all throughout the land. And God used Joseph to bring his family down. He forgave his brothers and he provided for them food so that they wouldn't die. So he was kind of like a rescuer that God raised up, but they didn't recognize him. In fact, they rejected him. Same thing happened with Moses. Moses was raised up by God, but we read this in verses 24 and following. Moses saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian. He went out to visit his own people, saw them being mistreated. So he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. And it goes on to say how they rejected him and Moses fled off to a foreign land. Then God appeared to Moses in the burning bush. He said, I am raising you up. I'm sending you back to Egypt to deliver and rescue our people from slavery. But this is what Stephen says coming out of that, verse 35. He says, This is the same Moses they had rejected with the words, Who made you ruler and judge? He was, he was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself. And then verse 37. This is the Moses who told the Israelites, 
God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. Okay, so Joseph was being raised up by God. They didn't recognize him. They rejected him. Moses was being raised up by God. They didn't recognize him. They rejected him. And this same Moses said, there's going to be a prophet like me, someone like me who's who's going to come later. And Stephen's message is that that prophet is Jesus. You guys didn't recognize him and you rejected him. That leads to his conclusion from verse 51. He says, you stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You were just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. That's Jesus. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. You see, in the end, it was not Jewishness that got you into the people of God. It wasn't the temple that secured your access to God's presence. It was Jesus The Jewish leaders' problem was not that they were circumcised or following the law, but they needed more than that. Their problem was what Stephen said in verse 51, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. In other words, on the outside, you're marked out for God, but on the inside, your heart, it doesn't belong to God. It's actually full of corruption and greed and wickedness and idolatry. They needed true righteousness. They needed something greater than an external. They needed something greater than circumcision, something that would truly secure their right standing with God, that would make them righteous from the inside out. And that thing was Jesus. Jesus is the only one who followed God on the outside and on the inside with all his heart and soul for all the days of his life, even to his death. The Jewish leaders needed Jesus, who Stephen calls right at the very end of his sermon, the righteous one, the righteous one. That's a very specific reference. That comes from Isaiah 53, where God promised to send his righteous servant. We'll put it up on the screen for you. Verse 11, God said, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. My righteous one, my righteous servant will justify, he'll make many righteous and he will bear their iniquities. And this is right at the very heart of what Jesus lived and died to do. You see, he lived the life that no Israelite, no one had ever lived before, a perfectly righteous life. He loved and followed God from the inside out all the days of his life. And when he went to the cross, he intentionally made himself a sacrifice for the sake of sinners. He intentionally allowed God to treat him as a rebellious, wicked person so that anyone who has rebelled against God can be justified in his sight. So what we call the, the great exchange. Jesus came to be everything that Israel failed to be and he came to pay the penalty that they deserved to pay so that they could become everything Jesus was and receive every blessing that Jesus deserved to receive. You see, what Stephen's accusers really needed to do and what he hoped that they would do was put their faith and their trust in the righteous one, in Jesus. And it's what you and I need to do today. I wonder what you think 
makes you a Christian or what makes you right with God. It's not about externals. It's not about your moral record. It's not about being a good person. So many people think that Christianity is about being a good person. That's at the very heart of it. That's just a man-made religious message. Right at the very heart of Stephen's message and the message of the early church was that there is one good person. There is one righteous person. His name is Jesus and he loves you. And he came to live a good life and die a horrific death so that all who put their faith and trust in him would be justified before God. All of their, all of their sins wiped away, cleansed, forgiven, and made right before God. That is the good news at the very center of Stephen's message. And so my question is this morning for you here and and for you online is have you put your trust in Jesus? Maybe you already are a Christian this morning, but you've been struggling lately. I wanna ask you, is your trust still in Jesus? Don't be tempted to look at your own shortcomings. Look at Jesus. He is your security and your assurance before God. And the thing is, when you receive Jesus, when you spend time with Jesus, you become more like him. And this is what's happened in Stephen's life. We see this in his death in the final scene. I said before that Christianity is not about us being good. It's about Jesus being good for us. But when you truly get to know Jesus, when you receive his forgiveness as a gift, it transforms your heart. It changes you from the inside out. It makes you a better person. And this is what happened to Stephen. The message he preached worked. It was authenticated through his life and especially his death. It actually did make him a better, more contented person. He proved his message from the scriptures and now he's gonna qualify it by the way he dies. The fruit of his life is so profound and beautiful that it qualifies his message. And Luke, the writer of Acts, he wants us to see this because as he records Stephen's death, he records very intentionally how similar it was to Jesus's death when Jesus was crucified. So in Luke chapter 23, Jesus said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit when he was dying on the cross. And Stephen, in our chapter, he says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. In Luke 23, as Jesus was dying on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. And Stephen dies in the same just merciful, loving way. He says in verse 60, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. That is profound because Stephen didn't die calmly on a bed and just sort of give his last lovely words to people. He was being stoned to death. So in those days, the Jewish practice was you'd take them out of the city, you'd throw them off a cliff, you take off your outer robes because it was hot work. It was, it was, a, it was a bit of hard work. It was, a, it was a workout to do this. And they go and gra- grab big stones and they throw them off the cliff aiming for the chest. But it was an inaccurate business. So sometimes it would take a while to actually kill the person, breaking limbs and those sorts of things. It was a pretty gruesome way to die. And in the midst of that, Stephen is looking up and he's seeing Jesus standing for him in heaven. And he's filled with the Holy Spirit. He's saying, Father, do not hold this sin against them. Amazing. That is what happens when we're filled with the Holy Spirit and Jesus gets a grip on our hearts. We hold to the message of Jesus. It transforms us. 
He had found a joy and a purpose and a peace that couldn't be broken by hostility or even death. Stephen's secret and his message was Jesus. Our passage teaches us that it's all about Jesus day in, day out. So I really want to encourage you this morning, don't buy into the competing messages out there or the West's message that materialism will give you lasting happiness. True joy, true purpose for living is found in Jesus and in embracing his mission to spread this gospel throughout the earth. When you hold fast to the message of Jesus and let God make you more like Jesus, your message becomes stronger, your witness becomes powerful. And this was the case for Stephen. He wouldn't have realized what an impact that he had. He died and it seemed like that was it. But he did not know that Saul was standing there at the end of our passage. Saul was like this arch-conservative, zealous Jew, and he was happy about what was happening to Stephen at the time. But later on, and we'll hear about this in the series next year, he was converted. He came to know Jesus. He eventually became the Apostle Paul, who many of us know. And he was the greatest missionary in the New Testament. He preached the gospel all over the Roman Empire and many people turned to Jesus. In this series in Acts, we've witnessed Jesus commission his apostles to preach the gospel. The church has received the Holy Spirit. The message has started to spread. And as we continue this series next year, we'll see that this persecution of Stephen was the catalyst that God used to get the gospel moving out of Jerusalem and out towards the ends of the earth, just like he wanted God is building his church despite opposition. And we get to be a part of what God is doing in our day, in this city. We get to lay down our smaller, selfish agendas for the sake of the gospel today. And that's not always easy, but I really believe that it's in this sacrifice, it's in this greater purpose and in this greater story, this lofty vision that God is inviting us into as a people, it's here that we actually discover the good life we've all been searching for, a life full of Jesus and full of unbreakable joy. Let's pray. Lord, would you call us out and call us deeper into your mission Jesus, help us to see that no matter where we are, we are never too far gone for you. That no matter where we are, true joy is waiting for us in you and giving our lives to you and following you and seeking to spread the gospel, whatever it takes. Lord, take us deeper into your mission. Help us to treasure you more, Jesus, for who you are, your beauty, your goodness, your grace to us. Help us to see this world through your eyes. Help us to see through the competing messages that come and vie for our hearts and take our hearts for yourself, Lord. Lord, that your kingdom come and your will be done in and through us as your people. We love you, Lord, and we pray this in the good name of Jesus. Amen. Church, would you stand with us? We're gonna continue worshiping God and respond, but I just wanna declare this blessing over you from Ephesians chapter one as we finish. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father,
would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Amen.